Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. Uh, well, this actually, Will, I don't know why you decided to insert your I'm Will Kynes <laughs> in this episode, because this is a bit of a different episode for us, right? That's true. I mean, people still need to know who I am. That's true. <laughs> You're not co-hosting with me this episode. That's true. Right? Okay, so this is a special episode, and we're going to do things a little bit differently here. Um, first, we're moving Will from the position of interviewer to interviewee. So this is why he is sitting over here beside his father. Uh, And that's because we're going to be talking about uh, Will's new book, uh, which he's co-authored with his father, Bill Kynes, who's joining us today. Uh, So we've invited him and the two of them are going to be talking to us about their book, uh, which came out with InterVarsity Press, and it's titled Wrestling with Job, Defiant Faith in the Face of Suffering. Uh, Third, instead of working through a particular passage of the book like we normally do, we're going to be thinking about the book of Job as a whole and thinking about how you might teach or preach this book, given that it is a difficult book, right? (laughs) Um, So we're glad to have both Bill and Will here. And fourth, this episode is a live episode. So we have an audience here. If the the audience, if you'd make a little bit of noise for our um, podcast listeners... (laughs) Thank you. So this uh, episode is part of Samford's uh, Parents Weekend Festivities here at Samford University. Um, and so we're really delighted to be able to talk to Will and Will and Bill. This is going to be tough. Uh, Bill and Will, Will and Bill, this father-son collaboration on their book. Uh, and fifth, the other thing that makes this a very special episode, I think it's the first episode where we have had two people with the same name. That's probably true. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Only one. So Bill and Will, you know, I looked it up and I was just trying to confirm that Bill is short for William. Right? <laughs> okay. Yes, Ronnie. Okay. I know you're from Egypt, but that's, that's true. <laughs> there is a Greek name, actually, that's abbreviated to Bill. I did not well. know that. Yeah, I, I saw it on Wikipedia. It's okay. trustworthy as Wikipedia can be. <laughs> well, let me introduce our guests for today, Bill and Will. Uh, Bill Kynes has his Ph.D. in New Testament from Cambridge University. Uh, He was the senior pastor of Cornerstone Evangelical Free Church in Annandale, Virginia, from 1986 until just this May when he retired and moved down to Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, He's a former Florida Gator quarterback. And Rhodes Scholar. You notice that pause? That's, that's, I'm very impressed. Um, more, Even more impressive than the PhD in Old Testament. Uh, Will Kynes, PhD in Old Testament. Look at that. Father-son yeah. collaboration, rivalry a little bit. PhD in Old Testament from Cambridge University as well. Is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Samford University. He has written extensively on the book of Job and wisdom and suffering in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, His books include My Psalm Has Turned Into Weeping, Job's Dialogue with the Psalms, as well as An Obituary for Wisdom Literature with Oxford University Press, 
the subtitle of that is The Birth, Death, and Intertextual Reintegration of a Biblical Corpus. Well done, Ronnie. And he is also the editor of the Oxford Handbook of Wisdom and the Bible. Thanks for joining us. The Good two to be with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ronnie. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I feel like I've, Bill. I feel like I've been. I, I, I've gotten to know you a little bit because through Will, you know, it's kind of like the the son channels his father, <laughs> maybe in great ways and in not so great ways. But I'm sure all the not so great ways we can say come from. That's all else. my fault. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> now, Bill, we know that Will has a passion for the Book of Job, but what drew you to studying the Book of uh, Job, and why? You say that it took you a long time to get to preaching it, right, in, in the course of your ministry. Why and why did you finally decide to take the plunge? Well, Job is a difficult book to preach. I mean, it's a long book, and I like to preach through books of the Bible. That was my uh, habit and, and pattern as a, as a pastor. And it's daunting to think of preaching through 42 chapters of the book of Job. And so much of it is this dialogue between Job and his friends. And, and in the end, God says the friends didn't even speak rightly about God. So how do you even preach that? Uh, that's a challenging thing. So there are a lot of things that were difficult about the book of Job. But I, I'm convinced, as the scripture affirms, that all the Bible is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's God-breathed word. And uh, as a pastor, I want to preach from the whole Bible. And so I said, yeah, I got to preach from Job. So finally, I got around to it. I actually had a three-month sabbatical, which I was able to use to, to prepare for the book of Job a little bit. So that's how I ended up doing it. Great. Now, why did the two of you decide to write this book together? And, you know, what was that like? Well, <laughs> my preaching, I mean, all the way through, it was a collaborative effort because I was uh, interacting with Will and he had specialized in the book of Job. And uh, each week I would uh, say, did you listen to my preaching? And then what did you think? And here was the father wanting the affirmation of his son, uh, kind of reversal of roles in some ways. And we, we, we were wrestling together with Job throughout that preaching series. And then the idea just arose of, well, why don't you combine your preaching of Job with Will's academic expertise and put it together in a a format that would be helpful for people, a whole spectrum, really, of readers, just someone who's interested in the book of Job, uh, Bible study groups that might want to study the book of Job, uh, pastors who might want to think, how can you preach through the book of Job, and uh, uh, maybe even some scholars who are interested in how, how do you translate this book into a more popular audience. Yeah, it was really fun because I remember I was in Spokane at the time, but my dad would call me every week and say, so what did you think about the sermon? But then we would start to think about the next sermon and what are the big issues in that section of the text that we need to think through? What are these, these difficult questions? And I was able to draw on the years of academic study I've done of Job to, to help one pastor think those things through. And the book tries to reflect a little bit of those conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has chapters that are the result of the sermons that Bill preached, but after each chapter, we have my more scholarly reflections on these are some of the really difficult issues okay. that you face in this section. 
That, you know, if you were uh, reading the book for yourself and you come across a question like, well, what is this Satan character, for example? Uh, I've kind of distilled the debate. You don't have to go look at five or six different commentaries to figure it out. You can look at that section of the chapter. But those, it's really a reflection of the kind of conversations that we were having mm-hmm. as the, chapter, the sermon series was going along. Great. Now, we have a room full of parents here with us. Uh, Bill, is there anything that you think the book of Job teaches us about parenting? <laughs> uh, I don't want to insult the parents, but I think you can learn a lot from Job's friends. Uh, Job's friends uh, try to sort out what Job is going through and don't do a very good job of it. And I think sometimes parents want to fix their kids and they're, they're addressing the kind of rational understanding that they now have of the world. And, and kids are just going through it emotionally. And I think the friend, one of the problem with the friends, they don't really deal with Job emotionally. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they're not really good listeners. Uh, so I think parents can learn uh, in some ways from the mistakes of Job's friends. And, and again, uh, Job's friends think they've got it all figured out. And sometimes parents give that impression to their kids, and we don't have it all figured out. Mm. Only God does. So uh, learning to point our kids to the God who, who knows, uh, even beyond our understanding, is a good lesson for parents, I think. I wanted to add something to that, actually, which is there's a conversation that I remember having with you, Dad, uh, when I was a kid. I don't know exactly how old, but we were. I remember we were sitting on the, the front steps of our house, and you said... You know, Will, I want you to remember, you and I have the same last name. <laughs> so what you do in the world <laughs> represents me <laughs> uh, in some way. And I think there's a way in which uh, the book of Job, that's one of the issues in the book of Job, is that God really puts his character on the line based on the way that Job responds to his suffering, uh, which is a challenge that you can take from Job is, as you live your life, are you in one of those moments uh, where you and your Heavenly Father, in some sense, share the same last name and your actions reflect on Him in some way? One of the things I was thinking, actually, based on something I've heard you say, well, in the opening of Job's book, he has all these sacrifices, mm. right? And it's disputed, right? And you can go listen to our episode on Job 1 about how different scholars take this. But one possibility is that the sacrifices are overkill, mm-hmm. even for the sins of his yeah. children, right? Yeah. I mean, what would you, if it is overkill, yeah. what would that say? Yeah, I mean, I do think that what's going on there in Job 1 is, is a feeling that, you know, I've got three kids now that I feel, which is you want to protect your children. <laughs> you want to protect them. You want to do whatever you can. And so Job offers these sacrifices just in case his kids may have sinned. Right? That's how badly he wants to protect them. Mm-hmm. But I, one of the things that I think we see over the course of the book is that Job moves into a context where he doesn't live with that kind of fearful anxiety about God. He, he learns to trust God more. Uh, now, of course, it doesn't turn out so well for the children in the book. <laughs> no, <it does> not. <laughs> but I guess you could say that's in spite of all those sacrifices. Those sacrifices didn't really... They didn't work. Yeah, they didn't Goodness. work. Yeah. Now, Bill, you start the book out by arguing that Job is a challenging text. What, what do you think makes it so difficult for us? Well, as I mentioned, it's a long book, uh, 42 chapters. Much, most of it is 
Hebrew poetry, which is a challenge uh, for us to kind of understand all the different metaphors that are being used in the poetry and so forth. Uh, But I think what makes it difficult is that it doesn't answer the questions we have. We want to know, why do we suffer? And ultimately, the book does not give us an answer to that question. So I think that's one of the challenging bits of it. and again, you know, what, what do you make of the friends and, and the way they're speaking about God? And, and is Job a model for us in some way? How do we, how do we deal with that? So those are, those are some of the things that, that made it a, a challenge. And, you know, how do you preach it uh, is a challenge for pastors who are kind of wrestling with this kind of cumbersome text. Yeah, I mean, I mean you, you just said that uh, he wrestles with God and he doesn't get an answer. So, I mean, I guess, you know, the question is, well, why is it even worth joining Job to wrestle God if he's not going to give me an answer? Well, there is a sense in which God responds to Job, but he doesn't answer the question that Job has. Why am I suffering? He demonstrates who he is and that he's worthy of our faith. And that's the critical thing. Mm-hmm. Because we will all suffer. In one way or another, in this fallen world, we will all suffer. And I always felt that as a pastor, one of my primary responsibilities is to help people prepare to suffer. And the book of Job challenges us in that way because Job perseveres in his faith. Uh, It's not an easy journey. It's challenging. I mean, he starts out really well and very pious in the beginning, but then reality sets in and he has this incredible emotional struggle. And I think one of the things that the book does is say, that's okay. Uh, That reflects the reality of human experience. And I think Christians need to hear that, that we can be engaged in wrestling with God. We can be honest with God. We can say, God, I don't like this. This is is why you're doing this. And there is a place for lament and this almost uh, protest that that Job goes through. Um, So I think people are encouraged by that. I'd also say that God doesn't explain things to Job, but in the end, God does restore Job. And the text isn't clear. We could imagine if Job had not wrestled with God in the way that he did, would Job still be on the ash heap? We don't know. What we do know is that as a result of wrestling with God, Job is restored at the end. Mm. So there is an encouragement there to when you face suffering and pain— to bring it to God in the same way that Job does. And what we see throughout the Bible uh, is people doing that over and over again. I mean, the Lament Psalms are a great example of this, people bringing their pain to God. And over and over again, the Lament Psalms end in praising God for what he's done. This doesn't mean that every time you face suffering, you just pray a prayer and things are every, everything's going to be mm-hmm. fine. Um, but it does mean that there is a certain kind of pattern to suffering and relating to God and suffering that Job contributes to. And and I think I mentioned the length of the book. I think the length of the book is part of the message of the book. In other words, we we don't get over these kind of things quickly. Uh, There's no snap and all of a sudden we're we're out of it. Uh, Sometimes when we get in in painful situations, it takes a journey to get through it. And the book of Job, the length of the book, in a sense, takes you through the journey of Job's experience, which reflects, I think, something of our own experience in times of suffering. 
Now, Will, there's a double meaning in the title of your book, right? Yes. So we're wrestling with Job the book, okay. but we're also encouraging people to wrestle along with Job as Job wrestles with God. What we're getting at there is something that we see as really prominent in the book of Job, which is this idea of defiant faith, which is in the subtitle there. This defiant faith of bringing your struggles to God, but from the perspective of a faith in God and who he is, that God is good enough, that God is powerful enough to make things right. And this is something that people struggle with. When you've, if you've really read through Job, you get, you know, chapters 1 and 2 are fine, but then chapter 3, Job curses the day of his birth, and you wonder, what is going on with this book, right? And it continues like that for chapter after chapter. Uh, but that tendency to bring our suffering very honestly to God is something we actually see across the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. And it's not an expression of a lack of faith as it's presented to us. It's actually an expression of faith because people, these heroes of Israelite faith, people like Abraham and Jacob and Moses and the psalmists and prophets like Jeremiah, they come to God and they say, as Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, right? It's a belief that God is judge mm-hmm. and he is just, uh, and, but it's encountering something in this world that he can't understand how that fits with God's justice. And so from that context of faith, entreating God to act according to his revealed character. And that's what we see Job doing in the book. Mm. He perseveres. He never curses God. He never turns his back on God. I was just reading Job 3 with my core text class because mm-hmm. I think it, it, it has one view of suffering just in those chapters. He's cursing the day you know, for his birth and wishing that he had never been born because if he hadn't been born, then all the suffering he yeah. wouldn't be experiencing would have been happening to him. And I really appreciate that Job 3 is there. It articulates, I think, where many people do go mm-hmm. and can go often in their suffering, right? Um, it would be better that I was dead. But the book doesn't end there. Right. Right, Job continues. And there are, so it seems like there are limits around what a defiant faith looks like. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, it's not just defiance, right? It's, it's defiance right. that is paired with faith and comes from the foundation of faith. I, it is significant that you have something like Job 3, which is shocking to yeah. us. Uh, but I think part of the reason it's so shocking to us is that, especially within an American Western Christianity, there's mm-hmm. this feeling that you always have to be happy. <laughs> and Job is not a happy book. It does have a happy ending, but a lot of the book is not happy. And that's, I think, a message that people need to hear, that when you face suffering, you can bring that to God like Job does. And there's a value in that for faith. Yeah. Well, it, I think Christians sometimes want to put on a happy face. The only emoji that's allowed is the happy face. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it, authentic prayer needs to be the real me addressing the real God. Mm-hmm. And if the real me is struggling, that's the, that's the me that I need to take to God. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think Job gives us permission to do that. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you're not allowed to go to the extent of cursing God, right? Is, do you think Job is trying to say that you can do lots, but that's kind of crossing the line? It seems to be because that's where the wager is set, right? <laughs> if you were to do that, yeah. that would be breaking the relationship with God. Right, right, yeah. right. 
Right. Okay. All right. Uh, well, we do have a room full of husbands and wives here. Um, and Will, you argue that the way Job treats his wife is significant for the book as a whole. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah. So we see in chapter two, uh, verse nine, after Job has lost everything, he's lost his uh, children and all his possessions, which means his wife has also lost all of her children and all of her possessions. Uh, it says in verse nine, then his wife said to him, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. And a lot of people uh, like to attack Job's wife, right? And some people will even go as far as to make the quip that, well, the Satan really knew how to get at Job because he took everything else but left his wife, right? You know, that's the joke you'll sometimes hear. Um, but I think that Job's response here is really significant for understanding the way that the book works because what he says to her in verse 10 is, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. Now notice what he's doing there. He's, he's creating some distance between the way that she is behaving in this moment as she faces suffering and who he believes that she really is. He doesn't believe that she's a foolish woman, but right now she's speaking like a foolish woman. And this is a big issue in the book. It's a question of integrity. Are we going to act according to what's really true within us or not? That's what the Satan is attacking Job on, right? Job, you do all this great stuff. You're this pious, faithful man. But is that really what's deep inside you? But it's also what happens in the way that Job responds to God. What Job basically says to God is, what I'm seeing from you, you're acting like an unjust God would. But I don't believe you're an unjust God. I know that you're a just God. I have faith that you're just and good. But from what I'm experiencing of you, because I am this man who has been faithful to you, and yet I'm suffering in this terrible and unjust way, it appears to me like you're an unjust God. Hmm. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of at the heart of this defiant faith thing that we've been talking about. It's based on his, Job's faith in his wife that he responds the way that he does to her. And it's based on his faith in God that he responds the way that he does to God. Now, Job has some friends who join him along the way. Um, and Bill, you call their contribution to the story cold comfort. What, what do you mean by that? Well, again, as I mentioned, I think they failed to deal with Job in his suffering. Uh, one commentator, Chris Rash, contrasts the uh, kind of uh, uh, position of uh, a a scholar addressing philosophical issues versus uh, a person going through suffering themselves. The, the kind of academic chair versus the wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And they fail to deal with Job in his wheelchair. Uh, they, don't, they don't share his heart. They don't understand him. They're not patient with him in some of the kind of outrageous things that he says mm -hmm. because they're not dealing on the same level with him. And I think that's, that's part of their problem. And in a sense, they're trying to distance themselves from Job. Uh, we often do this. When someone is suffering, we, we want to we kind of say, well, there's something different about their circumstance than my circumstance. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's got lung cancer. Well, because he smoked all his life, and I didn't do that. So that, that keeps me safe. Uh, we do that all the time, and I think that Job's friends are doing that in trying to separate themselves and in some way protect themselves from what appears to be this random mm -hmm. act of, of suffering. 
so it's a way of, of comforting themselves by accusing Job. And, and they get it wrong. They get it wrong because that's not the case in this situation. Yeah, it's interesting the way they protect themselves is by making him morally blameworthy. Mm-hmm. While they, ins- in, in some ways, you, you might say that that insulates themselves from any moral injustice since they are not experiencing the consequence of that kind of that's true. sin or impiety. That's, that's interesting. Uh, Will, how does God respond to Job's suffering in the book? Yeah, so this is one of the more surprising parts of this book full of surprising things, right? So what's surprising in the first place is that God does not respond to Job for a very long time. And that is one of the most difficult things for Job is God's absence in the midst of his suffering. But this is another place where the book is so honest and insightful into the way that suffering really is, if we've experienced in in our life. I was recently reading... um, C.S. Lewis's reflection on his own, on his wife's death, a grief observed, and where he says that, you know, when things are going well, it feels like God is right there whenever you need him. You rarely call on him when things are going well, but he's right there. But when suffering comes, it feels like the door is bolted against you when you go to see God, and, and, and God is completely absent. And so that's what Job is wrestling with, is this feeling of divine absence. But then finally, finally, in chapter 38, we hear, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And it's significant that it's the Lord. If you look in your Bibles, you see that it's all caps there, L-O-R-D. And that's when the special divine name that God gave to Moses is being used. And that word, that name hasn't been used for God throughout the whole dialogue between Job and his friends. And so here, God is personally appearing to Job. And so we might think, oh great, he's going to solve everything. But God appears in a whirlwind, and he says things like this, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me, where, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Right? And he just goes on like that with these forceful rhetorical questions that force Job to say either I I wasn't there I don't know or you God you're the one who does all these things I don't have anything to do with it and he goes through and describes the breadth of his creation uh, including the creation of the world itself but also small animals like ravens and things like that that don't seem to have anything to do with Job's situation (laughs) but never actually addresses Job himself and what Job is going through. So it's really surprising. Uh, not exact, not what we would expect at all. But there's something really powerful about this when we reflect on it. Because what God is doing with Job is meeting him in his suffering in a way that doesn't just communicate to Job, but that can communicate to anyone who is suffering. Because what he's doing here is he's saying, look at all of my creation. Look at these ravens. Who gives the food to the young of the ravens? And the implication is I do. I care for those things. And so just like Jesus says, uh, when he says, you know, does not a sparrow fall to the ground without my father knowing it? Saying, if God cares for the sparrows, if he cares for those baby ravens, clearly he cares for you, Job. So that's on the one side of it. Then on the other side, we get these descriptions of these monsters, the behemoth and the leviathan at the end of God's speech. What is he doing with that? Well, he's going to the other end of the spectrum and saying, if I'm more powerful than these great monsters, which represent chaos, uh, then clearly whatever you're facing, 
I can deal with that, right? I can deal with those things. And so since he takes that kind of approach, that would apply to anybody who is suffering, right? Anybody is greater than sparrows. Anybody, whatever someone is facing is less than Leviathan and behemoth Mm -hmm. and this chaos. Uh, And so in that way, even though God does it in a forceful way, this is tough love for sure, he does it to comfort Job. That's what he's trying to do is provide comfort. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I just, sometimes we don't receive the comfort that we need because our God is too small. Mm. And the God who reveals himself to Job is a big God. Mm -hmm. And if your God is uh, small enough to understand, he's probably not big enough to worship. Now, what about Job's response to God's response? Okay, I remember we talked to Carol Newsom about this when we were going through the book of Job and about this passage in particular. Uh, She said that our whole understanding of the book hinges on this passage. Mm-hmm. Okay, on uh, Job's response to God. Uh, in the NRSV, so we're in chapter 42 here, in the NRSV and most English translations, Job says something like this. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's verses 5 to 6 of chapter 42. But in your book, you argue that this is not the best translation. Why is that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we'd say in the book that we both hesitate to try and make an argument that the English translations that people are familiar with are wrong. And, uh, but in this place, it seems like <laughs> <laughs> it's important to recognize what's going on here. And I'll spare you the technicalities of the Hebrew, uh, but the basic idea is that almost every Hebrew word in those two verses can be disputed. Uh, So if we're going to understand them, we have to understand them within the context of the whole book. There's one Hebrew word that is crucial to know, and that's the Hebrew word nacham. Nacham means, it can mean, to repent. And so that's what we see in 42.6 in the NRSV in most translations, Job repents. But nacham can also mean to be consoled or to be comforted. Uh, and so what, uh, what we think is going on here, uh, and I think Carol Newsom's ended up saying something similar to this, is Job is not repenting after God appears to him, but he is saying, God, I am consoled, right? You came to console me, and I am accepting the consolation that you have offered. And so I'm putting aside my mourning. Uh, and One of the things that leads us in that direction is not just the way that we understand the divine speeches, because all of these things are interrelated, and that's why this is a hinge point, but is the movement of the book as a whole, which is when Job faces his suffering in chapters 1 and 2, he starts a ritual practice of mourning. This would have been really common in the ancient world. You see it in the Old Testament a number of times. And so when the friends come at the end of chapter 2, it says that they come to comfort him, and uses that same Hebrew word, nacham. But they do a terrible job of comforting him. And in fact, at one point in chapter 16, Job says, you are miserable comforters, miserable nachamers, if we were going to adapt the Hebrew. Uh, So they don't do the job they were supposed to do of consoling and comforting him. Instead, they turn on him and attack him because they're afraid that they might suffer in a similar way. So when God finally appears... God is the one who is able to, to comfort, to console, to nacham Job. And Job is receiving that consolation there at the end of the book. 
Yeah, and I think that it helps to understand this idea of consolation. It's not just an emotional thing, but it's a returning in, back into normal social life mm. that has to take place after ritual mourning. Yeah. Uh, you see an example where Jacob refuses to be comforted by his sons when he learns that uh, Joseph, his son, had been apparently killed. Uh, and so, so the, the comfort means to re-engage in social life, which is what happens to Job after this encounter with God. So God is the one who enables him to overcome this experience of grief, to emerge out of this state of mourning, and to re-enter uh, normal social life. And, and I think that that makes sense of what's going on there. And, and when it says, I despise, there's no himself in the Hebrew that's yeah. added. It simply means I reject. So I think what we're saying is that he's rejecting, he's turning away from this state of mourning. He is now consoled. He is now able to re-enter into normal social life because of the assurance he's gotten from God himself that God knows God cares, even if he, Job, is, is left in the dark. And he, remember, he is left in the dark. He never knows what's going on. Yeah. I mean, and another piece to this, and one of the reasons why I think so many English translations translate that as repent, is because people are uncomfortable with the way that Job speaks to God. And so they got to mm-hmm. think, well, it must be wrong what he does, and he has to confess at the end. Uh, but in fact... Uh, there's a way of reading the book that the, we are proposing here in which what Job is doing is right. Uh, and in fact, immediately after Job says that he has accepted this consolation from, Golden, from God in 42.6, God himself says to the friends, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So God himself says that what Job said was the right thing to do in his situation. The friends who try and defend God by attacking Job were the ones who were in the wrong. Yeah, Job uh, it functions exemplary yeah. in, in the way he responds to God, which is really interesting. Yeah. And one of the things that that raises is, well, is, is Job grumbling against God like the Israelites yeah. in the wilderness? Mm-hmm. And the difference is the Israelites in the wilderness are grumbling against Moses and they're rejecting that God is good and they're turning away from God. They want to go back to Egypt. The difference is Job keeps coming to God. He never rejects God. He keeps coming to God. He wants to meet with God. And and that's one of the great themes of the book. So uh, this isn't that kind of grumbling. I think you have to maintain that distinction. Now, after Job's response, we get this very ending of the book of Job that I think a lot of readers have trouble with. Actually, you know, I sometimes tell my, my students, as I say, listen, if I'm, write, if I'm writing the book of Job, I didn't write the book of Job, of course, but if I'm writing the book of Job and I'm trying to undo this kind of idea that uh, the way you act results in a particular consequence, right? Like if you do evil then the result is going to be catastrophe for you. If I'm trying to undo that, then I do not end the book of Job with Job being restored. Yeah. I mean, that's not what I do, but obviously yeah. that's what it happens here in the book of Job. So, you, Bill, you write, uh, and you quote one commentator who says that God turns out to be Father Christmas after all. And you defend the epilogue. Now, why, why is it so important? Well, then the just book? to be clear, that quote is someone who's cynical about the, okay, the okay, He's cynical you. about the quote. You know, oh, gosh, this is a terrible ending. I mean, you know, he's, he, God is just Santa Claus after all. Sure. Uh, 
No, it's important to realize, first of all, Job is vindicated before he is restored. Hmm. And that's very clear. In fact, uh, Job, uh, God calls upon the friends to ask that Job pray for them, uh, which is a way of turning the tables on the friends, that Job is now vindicated. Nothing has been said about Job being restored at that point. Mm -hmm. So uh, the story, Job has proven to be faithful. He has demonstrated his faith in God uh, apart from the blessings of God at that point. Right. So that, that's very clear. Sure. Okay. So then you've got this blessing at the end. Well, why is that? I think it's not necessary, but it's appropriate. Hmm. Because that blessing displays the kind of God that he is. And, and the kind of world that he's created. Where if... <laughs> God rewards those who earnestly seek him. There is a, 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 a reward. A, 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 it's, it's not an extrinsic reward. It's an intrinsic reward. It's the reward that comes through trusting in the goodness and glory of God. Uh, God's created the world such that those who pursue that path will be blessed. Now, uh, in Job's case, it's a material blessing in this life. Okay, uh, that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a greater hope than that. But our hope is that we, as we remain faithful to God, we will discover his blessing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I think the, the ending of Job just reinforces, the kind of God that he is. God is not capricious. He's not arbitrary. He doesn't delight in sending suffering on people. Uh, he allows those things, but he has a greater, greater purpose, and his greater purpose is to bring blessing to his people. And, and that's what the, the ending of the Job uh, recognizes. And, and in uh, the letter of James in the New Testament, it refers to Job's perseverance, and then it talks about in the end we see God's compassion and mercy displayed. Yeah, I think that's actually in James. I love that passage where he, where he puts... Uh, Job and the prophets is exemplary, like you said, says that in the end God is merciful and compassionate, and he's trying to encourage his audience. I was just I was just writing on this. Uh, he's encouraging his audience to persevere because God's judgment is coming, mm-hmm. which is, is right. And so it's kind of like looking a forward beyond your present circumstances. That's how he's reading Job. Right? Mm-hmm. It may not happen in this present world or in, in this life, but in the end, God will yeah. bring mercy and compassion to. those who faithfully persevere. I would also say it's a very common reading of Job to read it as attacking this doctrine of retribution, this idea that everybody gets what they deserve. I actually think that's a wrong reading of the book. Mm. I don't know what you tell your students in your class, but um, (laughs) uh, I think it's a wrong reading of the book because without a doctrine of retribution, that God is just, Mm -hmm. then Job has no leg to stand on to argue with God. Right. Why, Why would he deserve anything better than what he got? And yet Job does argue with God by saying, I have been faithful. I haven't sinned in a way that could merit this kind of suffering. And I believe you're a just God who will make things right. And in the end, God says that he spoke rightly. So it does nuance our understanding of retribution, right? Because what it says is you don't immediately get what you deserve. And that's part of the friend's misinterpretation is the yeah. friends see he's suffering and they assume, oh, this must be because he did something wrong. Yeah. Uh, it may be a very long time and it may not happen in this that's life right. as yeah. we've just mentioned. But in the end, God is a just God. And I yeah. think that that's reinforced by the epilogue. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's basically what I tell them. Is, I tell them, <laughs> is that in, yeah, in this present life, you may not receive justice, you may not see it, but in the end, God is just, and He actualizes justice in the yeah. end. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, one thing we didn't really explore when we were going through Job uh, in our last season of the two testaments was how Christians might draw on Job to better understand Jesus. And we have a Christian pastor here with us. Um, what do you see as the connection here between Job and Jesus? Well, in one sense, you see Jesus as the ultimate Job. Jesus is the ultimate righteous person who suffers and who wrestles with God. And you see it, uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood because of his anxiety about what he's about to experience. We see it ultimately on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are, that's, that's Jobin language. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the ultimate Job, and Job points us to Jesus. But then uh, Job, the book of Job, and, and Jesus points to the fact that God can turn suffering for good. For it was the ultimate suffering of Jesus that resulted in the greatest good for mankind in the salvation redemption that he brings uh so i think that's very significant another thing is that job is job desperately wants to meet with god he's crying out god meet with me tell me what's going on here but at the same time he's terrified at the prospect because he fears god and he knows that god is awesome and powerful and, and so at some points he's calling for, maybe I need a mediator. Maybe I need an arbitrator. Maybe I need uh, uh, someone who will, who will speak for me before God. And that's a pointer to Jesus. Jesus is that mediator for us. He is that friend who stands with us. Uh, he is the one who joins with us in our suffering, but then is able to, to bring us to God and overcome that suffering. Uh, so... Jesus is the ultimate answer to the book of Job in a sense that Jesus is the means of overcoming suffering completely and ultimately in the end. Uh, In this world you will suffer, Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that's the ultimate answer to the problem of suffering in this world. God himself has entered into this world. He shares in our suffering and ultimately he's done something about it. Jesus is risen from the grave. He is the beginning of this new world. And we have faith in him and, and, and perseverance in faith in the midst of a very difficult world, a fallen world, a world of suffering. We will receive glory with him and share in that new creation. So the book of Job ultimately points to the ultimate answer in Jesus Christ. Now, drawing on the genre that uh, we always come to at the end of our episodes, right, which is uh, the, epi- the genre of the blurb, right? We're on the back of, let's see, on the back of your book. Yes, you have three blurbs where you, other, other prominent people yep. say very even nice more things. Inside, I mean, just, oh, even more inside. Oh, even more inside. Right in the front Okay, cover. lots of blurbs, blurbing going on here. Um, would you all give us a blurb of something that you recommend? It could be a book. I mean, let's say you're not allowed to blurb your own book. Okay, we're blurbing it right now. Um, something else. It could be another book. It could be um, some hack that you found online that just has removed all the suffering from your life. It could, you know, it could be anything. Um, I'll tell you what. I'll give you. I'll give you a book and a hack. Okay. Okay. Right. So, um, 
one of my favorite things to do is read to my kids. Two oh. of my kids are here, Karis and Charlotte. Uh, and that is so sweet, Well, I know. Uh, they, they are very sweet. Um, so one of my favorite things to do is to read to my kids. And let me give you the hack first. Okay. So if you, don't, if you have younger kids and you want to read to them, but you're having a hard time getting them motivated, here's an idea. This is what I did with my kids. Okay. For the first few books that I read to them, when we finished the book, they got a reward. Right? Okay. So I would like take them out to ice cream or whatever it was. And yeah, that got over the initial lack of enthusiasm. Okay. But then I didn't need the reward anymore. The reading itself became oh, the reward, okay. right? All they right. learned from extrinsic motivation. They moved okay. to intrinsic motivation. They didn't so, ask for double ice cream. No, 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 no. no. Okay. Though sometimes they do still. Some, <laughs> for certain books, they'll be like, no, we need a treat for this one. Um, so that's the hack. But then the book, the most recent book I just read with them, which we really enjoyed, is called The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963, uh, by Christopher Paul Curtis. They're out there nodding in the audience. Uh, so if you're looking for a book to read to your kids... And we read this one, we moved to Birmingham three years ago, but we're still getting to know the city. And of course, it has a history that is in some ways very dark, but important to know and understand. And this is a powerful story about this young kid who comes and visits Birmingham and is here when there's a bombing uh, at a church. And so that's those are difficult themes to think through, but... Uh, uh, Curtis, he just does a fantastic job of helping kids understand some of these issues. Mm. And, uh, but it's also hilarious. And it has a great father character in it. And I love books that have great father characters. Uh, so I recommend that book. Right. Uh, two, two things, very right. briefly. Right. Uh, first of all, one of my hobbies that I don't get a chance to do as much as I'd like is fishing. And there's a wonderful website called Salt Strong. Salt Strong. If you like fishing, they have all sorts of videos. I I just use the free ones, but you can pay and get even okay. more. So I'm even more there. fishing videos. Yes, it's oh, wonderful. But uh, <laughs> a book. I thought it was just like you put like a fishing line on a stick. <laughs> you know, there's more to it than that. Let me tell you. Um, but a book. I, I'll do a shout out for a good friend of mine, Randy Newman. Uh, who is also a colleague on the, with the C.S. Lewis Institute based out of the uh, Washington, D.C. area. Uh, he's written a wonderful book called Mere Evangelism, which is really uh, distilling insights from the work of C.S. Lewis on evangelism. And many people don't know that, but C.S. Lewis was an active evangelist. He didn't think he was very good at it. But there are lots of insights from the work of C.S. Lewis that uh, Randy brings out in this book, Mere Evangelism, I recommend. Mm. Well, thanks for those. Um, Bill and Will, thanks for taking the time to walk us through the insights of your book on how we, too, can wrestle with the book of Job and with God. Um, And to those of you who are here joining us and those listening, uh, our fellow travelers through Scripture, Thanks for tuning in and thanks for listening. And if you wouldn't mind going online uh, to anywhere where you listen to podcasts, ideally Apple (laughs) podcasts. And if you give us your five-star rating, the the deserved one, the the just one, uh, we would appreciate it. It will help others find the podcast as well. Um, And again, you can find us at thetwotestaments.com where you can find other episodes. And thanks for joining us. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelda, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center. 
and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion. Yeah.